Uh, who's, <coughs> who's embarrassed about coughing? It's interesting, just sitting there, I was uh, starting to cough and I thought, oh, don't cough, no one wants to see you cough. What a great, uh, what a great privilege it is to be together, to um, consider the Scriptures. Joyce just read for us a passage that... Um, uh, a couple of passages, the most remarkable uh, passages, they're full of rich thought and uh, we've decided actually to break it in half that uh, we'll deal with this chunk of the Bible in over the next couple of weeks because there's just so much in there. What I want to do with us this morning is particularly pick up one aspect of it, the first part of it, which I want to suggest to you is about the issue of judgment. I want to talk to you about making judgments. This is a massively important topic, so let's pray. Let's ask God for his blessing as we do it. But gee, let's, uh, let's give our minds to these things. Let's pray. Father, we do ask, please, that you might cause uh, this time together to be uh, honourable to you, uh, bring you honour, uh, that you might please cause us to reflect deeply and carefully on the things that you have given us in the Scriptures, that you might transform and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that is deeply important in life, uh, in spiritual life, but in life, is making judgments, making right judgments. Uh, there was a period of time, some decades ago, a while ago, I got the sense that Christians had decided we ought never make judgments. We ought to be people who don't judge, as a misunderstanding of Jesus' words from Matthew's Gospel, where he says, do not judge. We, thought, oh, we, okay, we ought not judge. You can't live like that. It's actually a misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching at that point, too. We need to make judgments. That was Jesus' point, but to make them right. Make judgments right. We need to make judgments in every area of life. Who to marry, whether to marry, whether to have kids, whether to have not have kids, how many kids. Um, We've got to make judgments about that. Where to send them to school? Uh, Which school do I send my child? I've got to make a judgment about the school I'm going to send them to. Uh, Whether I'll, what friends they play with, who they play with, whether the family's okay. I've got to make judgments about all these kinds of things. I have to make judgments about what to do with God. Do I judge there to be a God? Do I judge the God who's there to be one to follow? I've got to make a judgment about that. Christianity, I've got to make a judgment about whether the Christian faith is true or not. I've got to judge that. And I've got to judge whether the Christian faith is one of many options. I've got to make a judgment there. I've got to make a judgment about the Christian faith and whether there's one kind of Christian faith or whether every kind of Christian faith is okay. I've got to make judgments all the time about what clothes to wear, what shoe to put on. When do we judgment all the time? And the key thing is, what it matters is, is to get those judgments right, to make good judgments. You know, you get judgments wrong, certain kinds of judgments wrong, and the consequences are massive. Who to marry? Kids, schooling. Uh, you get these judgments wrong and the consequences are with you for your life. Now, I feel like I ought to apologize, actually. I, I apologize at that point, actually, because I'm conscious it does put pressure on us. You might want to wish that you could just live your life without having to make judgments or being able to make judgments where it didn't really matter in the end. It all just worked out. You wish that would be the case, but it's not. We don't live in that kind of world. God has not created that kind of world. He has made us as genuinely responsible creatures who need to make judgments and he has given us the consequences of those judgments. We need to live with that. It brings a pressure into our life, but that's what humanity is about. We're not just animals. We are responsible creatures who carry the consequences of our decisions with us. Um, you know, Our failing to make a judgment also is a judgment. 
You might think the pressure's too great to make judgments. I'm just going to sit on the sideline and not make a judgment. There's no sideline. I remember many years ago I was uh, talking with some friends about the Christian faith and whether Jesus' claims were true or whether other religions were true and so on. And we were arguing this back and forth. With I was with a bunch of people who weren't believers. And uh, one of the people in the group said, uh, look, I don't like to make judgments. I think everyone's okay. Just uh, stop being critical of each other's religions and just get on together. And you know what? He sounded so tolerant, so accepting, so non-judgmental. But appreciate this. That judgment to not discern whether one religion's true and another's not is itself a judgment. Do you see how it's a judgment? It's a judgment that it doesn't matter which religion. It'll all be okay in the end. That's a judgment. You can't avoid it. We have to make judgments. And so the key thing for us is to make good judgments. There's nowhere safe from making judgments. It matters massively. And this part of the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, is about many things. It's particularly about the topic of judging. Uh, the whole book itself has been tackling this issue and especially how to make right judgments, how to get judgments right. And uh, you remember the context, there's a group of um, leaders have come to this church at Corinth that Paul established and they've um, impressed the Corinthians. And the Corinthians in Corinth have decided that these new leaders, they've judged them to be the ones worthy of following and Paul, not so much. They've judged him to be unworthy. Following, there's all about judgments, and Paul is trying to correct their way of judging. And what's powerful and engaging as you go through this passage is that he he draws their attention to pay attention to two things when you make judgments. When I make a judgment about something, two things are going on, and I think it emerges from this passage. We're going to show you how in a second. Two things emerge you've got to pay attention to getting the facts outside of you right. And you've got to pay attention to what's going inside you. Two things are necessary to make right judgments, good judgments. You've got to pay attention to what's outside of you. And you've got to pay attention to what's inside you. One's obvious, the other not so obvious. But that is what Paul does in this chapter of the Bible. It's an astonishing piece that says extraordinary things. And as I say, we won't get to all of it. We'll have to come back to it next week. In fact, next week will be a great week to bring your friend. Every week's a great week to bring. But next week, we're going to dig into the nature of the cross and so on in a full way. It'll be wonderful and exciting. Get, get along to that. Um, let me show you how this works. You see, the Apostle Paul, let's start firstly with the issue of making right judgments focused on what's outside of us. You have a look there. Let me, I'm going to read it through and just show you how this works. Verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God and I hope it's plain to your conscience. Just notice this. What we are, Paul says, is plain to God. God knows what we're about and I want to make sure it's plain to you. I want you to know what we are. See, Corinthians, as you're making judgments about us, I want you to pay attention to what's true about us, Paul, and the other leaders that he's talking about here. Usually, verse 12, we're, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. You, you've, you've 
started to go cold on us and you, you're ashamed of us. But I want to give you enough information to make a right judgment where you'd actually take pride in us. Do you see? He's trying to help them judge correctly. Um, now, so that, verse 12, we keep going through, you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. What Paul is wanting to do is, I want you to understand what's going on inside our heart, Corinthians. See, see you're, you're the one making judgments about us. I want you to see, get the facts outside of yourself correct about us. What's going on inside of Paul's heart? Well, he needs to do this because the Corinthians have seen Paul do some hard things. Paul is engaged with the Corinthians and he's written difficult things to him. He's said hard things to him. He's, he's pushed them on stuff. They've found Paul uh, hard to be with because he's um, critiqued them for various things and they've felt judged themselves and they think this man is not someone we want to follow. And, and they thought he's, uh, he, he vacillates. Do you remember? He, he makes a decision and changes his decision. He goes one way and goes another way. And they've, they've decided Paul's not worthy of following. And what Paul says, you need to know the true facts about us. All that you've seen us do is driven by right motives. Understand us properly. That's verse 13. You see, so that you can see what is taking place in the heart. I want you to understand what's in my heart, Paul says. Verse 13 is a tricky verse. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Now, what does it actually mean? I'll give you the bottom line of what it means. What it means is Paul saying to them, whatever I do, it's not for me. It's either for God or it's for you. My whole life is lived for the sake of others. You need to know about what's in our heart. All the hard stuff we've done to you, it's been driven by a heart concerned for God and for others. Understand that. Now, what does he actually mean um, if we're out of our mind? Uh, it's for God. Uh, look, there's various opinions on this. My view at the present <laughs> is that I think what Paul's talking about is ecstatic experiences of the Spirit. I think what he's saying is if we're, if we're in uh, the context of speaking in tongues or in visionary experiences that he shares later, that's for God. Those things are happening between me and God. But if we're in our right mind, if we're acting um, in the normal sphere of life, that's for you. Everything we're doing is for you. Pay attention to our heart. Take pride in us. See our motivations. He has a genuine concern. Look at verse 11. Come back there. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try and persuade others. The reason Paul says the hard things he says, the reason he does the difficult things he does, the reason he changes his plans is because he's entirely driven by God. He is aware, verse 10, that he's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not to receive a judgment of whether you're in heaven or hell or not. In Christ, we're saved from that. But to stand before the God of the universe, the Lord Jesus, in his judgment as a family member of Christ and be given account for how you've treated Jesus in this world. As a follower of Christ, there'll be rewards. And because of this, Paul says, I'm driven by that. All that I do with you, Corinthians, is driven by a fear of having to stand before God and give an account to him. I don't care what you think. I care what God thinks of me. And so I do what I do because of that. Understand He's saying to the Corinthians, see what's, get the facts of me right. Um, but he presses even further than this. Um, 
Look at verse 15. Uh, Verse 14, I'm sorry. Christ's love compels us. This explains out of mind, in mind. If we're out of our mind, it's for God. If we're in a right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us to do everything we do for the sake of others. To live for others, to speak and preach and lead for others. You see, what Paul is doing through here is saying to the Corinthians, if you're going to make judgments, you've got to get the facts right outside of yourself. You've got to understand what's actually happening as you make judgments about other people. What's going on for them, really? Don't make assumptions. Get that right. Now, I think we understand this, don't we? If you want to follow someone, as a, if you want to appoint a leader of our country, if you want to put a new leader over a school or have a leader appointed for your kids' soccer club or whatever it is, what kind of leader do you want? You want one who's not in it for themselves. You want one who's not motivated for their own personal needs. And this is especially true in the spiritual realm. If you have a, a leader in the spiritual realm, in things of the spirit, in, in the realm of the church life, if you have a leader in that context who's in it for themselves, for money, the money they gain, for the power they get, the status they get, their identity, their worth and significance. If you have a leader in a Christian community who's in it for those things, it will mess up their leadership. It means you won't be really able to trust them because you won't know whether they're, they're speaking to you or acting towards you on the basis of what's best for you or on the basis of what's good for them. You won't know. That's why for Paul it matters that he be driven by the fear of the Lord, being judged by him more than the Corinthians, being driven by the love of Christ, that compelling him, rather than the love of the Corinthians in its first instance. He wants to make them assured that the thing that drives him is not selfishness, but a selflessness. He's not a man who played to the crowd. Now, how does all of this apply to us? There's a number of ways in which this applies to us. Um, if you're going to make, you need to make judgments about all kinds of things. Be aware of the facts. As you make judgments about someone who you feel has hurt you or wronged you, understand what's actually gone on. Get beneath things. Understand what's gone out in that person's life. First thing. But if you're going to make judgments about Christian leaders and Christian churches and what you do there, then It's tricky online. What I mean by that is uh, there's all kinds of online preachers that we can now listen to. I mean, it used to be television, TV evangelists. uh, And uh, the challenge there is it's hard to see them. It's hard to know whether they're playing to the crowd, playing for themselves, about themselves. But you need to do some of that assessing. You need to do some of that judging. Do not listen to online preachers who are living in wealth and opulence, who are calling on you to give money so that they can get more, who fly around in private jets pursuing what's called the prosperity message. Be very cautious about who you listen to. Be aware of what motivates and drives and compels. But let me give you a bigger 
application of this for us? Do you know, I think the biggest application of this for us is a confidence in the Bible. The Apostle Paul declared a claim about the person of Jesus, that he died for our sins in our place. God made him who knew no sin, verse 21, to be sin. He made claims about the person of Jesus, about seeing him resurrected from the grave. And you know what? He did that without any regard to personal benefit. And this was the nature of all the apostles. They were driven by the truth of the message they preached, no matter the cost they bore because of it. Now, why is that important to know? Because because it gives you confidence they were telling the truth. They weren't cooking up a story to give themselves personal benefit. It wasn't about them. They were deeply concerned to just present what happened, no matter the cost to themselves. And it did cost them. It cost the Apostle Paul. All of them, bar one of those early apostles, were killed for their testimony. That little piece of evidence is a powerful, powerful witness to the truth of the message that we're listening to. Those first followers who proclaimed the death and then resurrection of Jesus gave up their lives to proclaim it. Now, I say all of this because I know some of you are going through very difficult times. I know some of you are in a context where you're um, struggling with health, you're being battered through emotional circumstances, relationships, or you've got others around you whose life is fading away and you're feeling distressed by it all. I want you to know that the foundations you put your hope on, a Christian message, the Christian claim of the Bible, is grounded firm. Those who first proclaimed these things did it without any motive for themselves. It means you can trust what it says. That there is a God who has loved us so much that he gave his only son for us. And that if you put your trust in him, you will not perish, but have eternal life. What a beautiful hope that's grounded so firm. And it's grounded firm because of the motives of these first apostles and teachers. There's some applications for us. When you make judgments, make sure you make right judgments about the external world, that you understand what's actually happened. The Corinthians, make sure you understand Paul, what was really going on for Paul. He was in it out of a desire to please his God. And it meant what he did was ready to be hard sometimes. Um, Now... uh, Paul goes on, though, to say that there's deeper thoughts that are happening here. That verse 14, the love of Christ that compels him is a love that is deep and profound. And this is where we're going to spend more time in this next week because there's just too much here to deal with. But look at verse 14. For the love of Christ compels me because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. I think what Paul is doing, he's saying to the Corinthians, I want you to know how much... I'm not doing this about me. I want you to know how much it's driven by Christ and pleasing him. Because it's his love that compels me, constrains me is the Greek word. It's a very strong word. Paul Paul is saying, I'm not in this for selfish gain because I can't but do what I do for the sake of Christ who loved me so much. And then he explains that love. What's the love of Christ? Well, verse 14, the love of Christ is that One died for all, and therefore all died. One died for all. Again, profound. We haven't got time to go into it, but it's the the conviction at the heart of the Christian message 
that by virtue of that man's death 2,000 years ago, you can be saved completely because he gave up his life as a sacrifice for you. One died for all. The, the, the word for, one died for all. The word for in this context means in the place of, as a substitute. One died in the place of all. I take it the all that he's referring to here is all those who are followers of Christ in his day and into eternity, into the future. All those who put their trust in Jesus, when Jesus died, they died with him because he died their death. That is to say, he paid their penalty, fallen completely. Do you know, sin means that we have to give an account of ourselves before God. Um, And sin is so pervasive and so perverse and so riddled through all that we are. When we stand before God, the wages of our sin means death. Paul tells us that the very death of Jesus himself was for our sin, in the place of our sin. God made him, verse 21, who knew no sin to be sin in our place, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has died for you, so your death has been died. You have, your debt has been paid. There is no more to pay. His death was your death, saved completely profound but Paul says more than this verse 15 he says he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again and when it's context what Paul is saying I think is that I want you to know Corinthians why I'm motivated by the love of Christ what is it about the love of Christ it's made made it so that I no longer live myself but I live for him you need to know that what motivates me is living for him all that I do is driven by that But for us, it's worth just pausing on verse 15 and noting that the reason Jesus died, because Paul generalises it, the reason Jesus died was that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for us. Did you know this about the Christian faith? Did you know that the very point of the death of Jesus was so that you might no longer live for yourself, that you might no longer live for me, that you might live for him, that your whole life might be radically turned around so that your heart's desire more and more increasingly is to please him and not yourself. Do you know, last week I mentioned uh, you time, me time. The, there's a cultural language that's in, crept into our world in recent years where I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time giving and now I want to have some me time. Um, and I suggested to you that uh, Jesus, did Jesus have me time? Well, he went away and had his Sabbath, he had his rests and so on. But the language of me time, it, it's not the issue that you need rest that's the problem. It's calling it me time that pollutes it. We we ought now no longer live for ourselves. We ought no longer live for me. Life is meant now not to be about me. It's not that I break up life into you time, God time and me time. No. All of life is now to be lived for him who died for us. 
What a profoundly different way to think of Christian life. You know, Christianity is not adding some spirituality into your life. It's not teaching kids morality. It's a profound death to self. No longer living for myself, what I want in life, my ambitions, my interests. No longer living for me, but living for him who died for me. Profound. We wake up every day reminding ourselves that my life is his. To be lived for him. Now notice though verse 14. This is the love of Christ. It's the love of Jesus who died for me that I might no longer live for myself because the best life is now no longer living for me. The best life never was that. The best life is living for him who died for me. That is, that is the love of God. To rescue you from living for yourself. The world will keep telling you it's not love. But the Bible insists otherwise. And you can trust the word of the Bible. Wake up each day. My life is his. My aim is to please him who died for me and was raised again. Now... As I say, that's not the main point. We'll come back to some of this next week in, in a deeper sense. But the main point is make right judgments. The main point is get your facts right. The external world around you. Make sure you understand what's happening out there. With the Apostle Paul, the Corinthians, make sure you understand what was driving Paul, the Paul says to them. Make sure you understand what was driving me. Why I did what I did. Why I did, said the hard things, did the hard things. You ought to take pride in us, he says. There's more. You see, when you make judgments, you need to get the outside world right. You need to get the facts right. But you need to pay attention to what's inside you. I think this is, this is less than obvious, but a powerful piece. You look with me there at verse 12. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. And here it is. So that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now what, what Paul's saying there is that there's people who are just concern, concerned about externals and they need to pay attention to Paul's motives. But I think what's also being revealed there is there's a group of people who bring to the activity of judging Paul a set of values that they carry that shapes their judgments poorly. That They come to the whole exercise of making a judgment about the Apostle Paul with a value that says, we think what you can see on the outside matters more than what you can see on the inside. They come with a set of values that if we're going to judge someone to be a God leader, a great leader, someone who's a glory, someone to take pride in, they will look great. Rather than, we'll see what's going on inside. They've brought their own stuff to the exercise of judging, as we all do. Let me give you an illustration of this. Um, you try to choose a school. I've tried to find the least offensive one I can. I think this is going to work for us. You're trying to choose a school. And uh, you've got an option, not all of us have the option of choosing outside of the public system, but you might have this particular possibility, uh, a, a grandparents lent you some money or something like this, and you've got the possibility of choosing a school. Now, you, you, um, 
you need to make a judgment about which school. And so you do your external fact-finding, and you find that this particular school isn't great at education. It doesn't do great care of kids, but it's prestigious. And you choose it because the thing you value most highly is prestige. Do you see what's happened there? You've got the facts right. You know all the facts about the school. It's just that you brought a value system to the judging exercise that means you value some of those facts more highly than others. You value the wrong facts. And we do this all the time. When we make judgments about people and things and the things of Christ and churches, we bring our own baggage to that exercise. We bring our own set of values that shape which things we see as most important. And if you don't have those values right, you'll make bad judgments all the time. That's what Paul's saying through here. You, you, look, you look with me. So, um, we, we want you to be able to answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart, who have messed up values. He talks about verse 14, the love of Christ. One died for all, therefore all died that we might live for him. Now look at verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. What's going on here? What Paul is saying is, um, uh, we once, Paul and his leaders, we once brought the wrong values to the judgment of Jesus. We got our facts right about Jesus he came in weakness. There was nothing in his appearance that would make us look at him. He, he, he was someone who um, didn't come on a conquering horse to defeat the Romans. We saw him as weak, and he was. He went like a lamb to the slaughter, and he didn't fight back. He was weak. We got our facts right about Jesus. He went to a cross, and we know that anyone who's crucified on a cross is under the curse of God. We got our facts right, Paul says. But here's the deal. We judged that weakness is shameful. We judged that strength is seen in prestige and power and glory and greatness. We had the wrong value system, which meant that when we looked at the, when we looked at the person of Jesus, instead of bowing the knee to the glorious and great God amongst us, we hung him up on a cross. We made a bad judgment because of the values we brought in the judging. Is this making sense? So Paul says, we, used to, we judged Jesus from a worldly point of view, according to the flesh is the literal. We once regarded Christ in this way, but we do so no longer. Why? Because of the resurrection. When Jesus died in weakness and shame... Lamb to the slaughter. Everyone deserted him. But three days later, Jesus rose again from the grave. And at that moment, God declared to the world that what looked weak was actually power. What looked unimpressive and full of shame was glorious. Because in the death of Jesus, the resurrection proved that the death of Jesus was victory was greatness. You see, Paul judged Jesus wrongly because of what he brought to the exercise of judging. 
But when he saw the, the truth about the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, that in his death, which looked weakness, he was dying in my place. He gave himself up like a lamb to the slaughter because that's the only way to save people, to go through the activity of weakness and shame, which shows the greatness and glory of God. When he saw the depth of what the cross was, it transformed the whole way he saw where true glory was found. Is this making sense? It changed everything about the way he viewed what was great and what was true weakness. It changed everything about the way he saw God in his glory. Do You see, the Apostle Paul grew up in the first century where um, the world was very different to today. We've been influenced by 2,000 years of Christian history. It was a very different place. Um, in the Roman world, um, you didn't pursue humility. You despised weakness. To, to, be, to be significant in the Roman world was to pursue wealth and power over others and prestige and glamour, externals. And the gods of the ancient world, the Greek gods... They were into looks and, and muscles and power and pre- not that I'm having go at the fitness industry just for a second there, but uh, they, they are into this kind of stuff. They are all into themselves. But then Paul saw the cross and realised that the true God, the true and living God, humbled Himself. Completely different to any other image of a God in the universe. God, the true God, humbled Himself. And became obedient, submitting himself to the will of his father. Submission. The gods of the ancient world would never submit to anyone. But the true God submitted himself to a sacrifice and a humble, weak death on a cross. The shame of it. Why? To love us. To honour his father. To rescue sinners. And Paul realised right there that greatness is found in humble, submission, sacrifice, service. Changed <laughs> This conviction and this insight changed human history. We live in a world that's been shaped by the cross and you don't even realise it. In our Western world, we do still believe that there's power and greatness in the humble sacrifice. That was not the ancient world. Now, this is not just my making this idea. This is a secular historians are now beginning to point this out. A man called Tom Holland has written a book called Dominion. It's a very important book where he goes through the whole history of the human race into the Christian faith and shows he's not a Christian, but shows how the Christian message of God dying on a cross in humility changed the way we thought about greatness, changed everything. And so we've grown up in this culture and it changed the Apostle Paul, but it didn't change the Corinthians. They were still living in the old way of thinking and Paul is deeply concerned that they may not actually understand the person of Jesus. If they judged Paul to be unworthy of their respect and pride... It means the values they're bringing to the exercise of judgment would have rejected Jesus as well. They probably don't understand Jesus and God if they're rejecting Paul because Paul is just doing what Jesus did, living the way Jesus did in humility, submission, sacrifice, service, faithful. 
And this is why it matters for the Apostle Paul. He is not just concerned about them and him. He's concerned about what is going on in their hearts, how they think about Jesus, how they think about God, whether they're still pagan in the way they understand greatness and glory, or whether they've been transformed to understand Jesus, because if they had, they'd take pride in Paul, but they're not taking pride in Paul, they're probably still unconverted. This is a deeply important thing and into our day and age. Let me now apply it to us. You know, we, uh, we live after 2,000 years of uh, Christian history, which has left its mark on our world where we still, we're not entirely pagan. We have this value of humility and sacrifice and service that's still there. It's only come from the Christian faith. But the Corinthian spirit is natural in us. When you let a human go, they become Corinthian. We begin to look to externals. We look to the wrong things as evidence because we bring a whole value system that's messed up by sin. Now I want you to take a moment together to reflect on this. Um, What I'm going to suggest to you is that if we have this messed up Corinthian spirit in us, as we look out on the Christian world, on the church world, on the world around us, what things will we mistakenly judge as good and mistakenly judge as bad because of that Corinthian spirit? Does that make sense as a question? I want you to actually share with each other. Does that make sense as a question? What, if, if you've got a Corinthian spirit, how will we misjudge greatness and glory? How will we misjudge a church and its connection to God? Got, yep, go for it. Take, a, take just a minute. We've got a few minutes. The clock tells me. How will we misjudge things? That's enough. I don't want to put you to torture too long. Some of you have done that really quickly. Let's give us your thoughts. My hope for others is that it's just started you thinking, and that's enough. But some have got all the conclusions already. Give us some thoughts. How will it, if we have a Corinthian spirit, how will we misjudge things? Give us. Well, no. Well, the the question is if you do. <laughs> just just pretend the person next to you has it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll um, we'll look for people who serve us and and not serve the bit wider good, the better good, the greater good. Yeah. We'll we'll think that we'll think that the bigger church must be the church more in touch with God. Now I don't know if that's what you meant by numbers, but that's what I mean by it. Yeah, we'll think, we'll think evidence of God amongst us must be, six, must be the big church. But no, evidence of God's spirit at work may well be the faithful few who remain faithful to the truth of the gospel despite opposition. Yeah. What else? So all you've got to do is give a word and I'll make up something. You know I can't see. The airplanes they fly, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. We'll, 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 judge, we'll judge our church leaders by externals. Um, and, um, uh, y- y- yeah, it, it becomes an issue. Yeah, thank you, Hazy. Yeah, um, you, you you need to make determinations about whether a, a Christian leader is in it for themselves or in it for the cause of the gospel, honouring, fearing God, and love, the love of Christ. And one of the evidences of that is whether if, if they're if they're gaining great wealth from their work, you've got to wonder whether they're in it actually for themselves. And so, yes, the the palatial mansion, the I've, I've cancelled it. It's all done. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah. What kind of what kind of image do we want to present to the world as a church? You see, think with me about this. We'll finish here now. Think with me about this. Given all that's happened by God in the cross, what's the evidence that the Holy Spirit of God is present amongst a group of people? What's, oh, yep, thank you, you got the, yep, what's evidence of the Holy Spirit of power present amongst a group of people? What the, the, the Corinthian spirit is to say it's spectacular signs and wonders. It's exciting movements. It's great and charismatic leaders. That's evidence that you're in touch with the Spirit. The, 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 the mood, the lights, the... But what's truly evidence of the Spirit of God? The God of the cross? What's evidence of His presence amongst us? That people no longer live for themselves but for Him who died for them. That people now seek to please Him. And not themselves. Evidence of the Holy Spirit will be holiness. And here's the challenge. You can't walk into a church and see that straight away. You can't walk into a church and say, ah, the Spirit of God is here. Because that takes time to know people. To see whether faith, genuine faith is here. It's possible to walk into a church and see the spectacular and the exciting. But Satan works in all kinds of counterfeit signs and wonders. There's no evidence that the Spirit is present with signs and wonders because Satan works exactly in those things. But where he can't work is in lives transformed to live for Christ and not themselves. That's a work only of the Holy Spirit. And that, here it is, your determination day by day to turn away from sin, to turn away from self and live for Christ is evidence of the powerful Holy Spirit in your life. The ordinary things of humble, submissive, faithful service of Christ. The power of the Spirit at work. Do you, do you see? Once you, once you get in there, and when we present to the world, what is the presentation we want the world to see? How great and glorious we are? No. They'll know you, my disciples, by love. By your love for one another. It's a very different way of thinking, isn't it? The point, though, is you'll only get these judgments right if you get changed within. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you might do that work in our lives, that you might transform and change our hearts, 
our minds, our thinking, that we might see the world through the lens of the cross, that we might understand where true power lies in the humble, submissive, faithful service to your will. Please transform our lives to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Please let the Spirit be evidenced in power in those very ordinary things. And we pray you'd help us judge these things to be wonderful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.